Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm happy to welcome Angie Freilich to the podcast. Angie's daughter, Chloe, was diagnosed with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy when she was 12 years old. Angie is here today to discuss Chloe's epilepsy journey from a parent's perspective and to shed light on the physical, social, and psychological impacts that epilepsy can have on a teenager, as well as the subsequent challenges it brings to parenting. Angie, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I've been so looking forward to this conversation. We're going to jump right in. I would love to learn how epilepsy first entered your life. Um, I, I, we're here today to talk about your daughter, Chloe. So how did it present in her and, and what was your journey to a diagnosis? Well, um, our journey started or her journey started four and a half years ago. Before that, perfectly healthy child, very active, very um, busy, motivated on top of things, um, never a dull moment. And that quickly changed. We were actually in Minneapolis for a soccer tournament for her. It was just her and I down there. Um, we had gotten down to down or down to Minneapolis late on Friday night and they played early. Um, she's one of those that never liked to historically eat much or drink much while she was playing. She thought it took away from her game. And um, and so they played three games that morning. She did kind of collide with somebody else, but they didn't hit heads or anything. And she was fine. You know, she bounced right back up. And, and so we had went to eat, went to shower, you know, went back to the hotel and showered and everything. And while we're at Mall of America, shortly after we ate, we were looking at kind of an art display and out of the corner of my eye, I see her go down. And at first I thought she had tripped on this easel that was right there, quickly realizing that was not the case. Um, she, I, I knew enough about medical. I've worked in healthcare um, for 20 years. I also had taken some EMT classes, so I knew enough to to recognize that it appeared to be a seizure of some type. Fortunately, we had a couple people in the mall. Um, one was a paramedic and one was a nurse that were just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And they quickly came to, to help us. They called, you know, 911 and, and they were so good with me as far as explaining, you know, the post-ictal period. And unfortunately she came out of it within five minutes, but she definitely had a, a, a grand mal seizure and um you know in that moment your whole world freezes because you don't know what's going on and so the whole ride to the ambulance she was starting to you know kind of come around and her biggest worry was letting the team down and playing her game the next day <laughs> we quickly you know reassured her that the team would understand and that we just need to figure out what's going on with her and so we went to Hennepin County Medical Center, which is the largest hospital, level one trauma center uh, in Minneapolis. And I have to say our experience there was nothing but positive. Uh, about three and a half hours, we were in and out. They had done every test under the book, gotten the results back. Um, they ruled out anything critical, you know, life-threatening. And they told us to follow up with her primary care physician 
you know, on Monday when we, we were back in, in Fargo. Now, was there any mention of epilepsy from those doctors at that point? Or they're just, they're ruling out brain tumors. They're ruling out the big, awful, right. scary stuff. And, right. And they send you on your way back to, back to her pediatrician. It, exactly. Yeah. No mention of epilepsy. Um, ha- never once crossed my mind, honestly, because um, once we were back in Fargo, I was talking to my sister-in-law and she had had a similar experience when she was about 12 also, and it was related to blood sugar. And so I had kind of talked myself off the, the edge of the cliff <laughs> and um, really th- thought and prayed that it was a, a one-time occurrence. And so that Monday we went to see her pediatrician. They were able to get her in right away. He ordered an EEG. Um, he checked over everything else neurologically that you know he could in the office there and really didn't see anything that stood out but wanted to do the EEG. And so we did that Wednesday of that week. So, you know, relatively quickly at least. Um, so we go in Wednesday, we do that. And while I'm sitting there, they did the strobes and it looked like she was having issues with that. And then I think we were there about maybe like two o'clock that afternoon and two or three o'clock. And by five 30, I had a call from the pediatrician and he, he sounded all upbeat. He says, yep, we got, you know, what we needed to see. And I'm thinking that sounds positive, you know? And then he says, your daughter has juvenile myclonic epilepsy. And you know, you feel like the world stops. It's like, what? <laughs> and so he just calmly said, we just need to start her on medication. She's going to start that today. And, um, you know, it's, it's of all the epilepsies, it's probably the best one to have. And she'll go on to have a normal, healthy life. And her meds, you know, she started Kepra that day. She was so exhausted that she just slept literally about 18 to 20 hours a day. And wow. Fortunately, wow. it was in the summer. So, you know, I don't know what she would have done. The girl would sleep constantly, but she wanted to be woke up to go to soccer practice. And she could, she was not at full capacity by any means, but she just wanted to feel somewhat normal. Um, well, and, and I'm sure she was scared too. Right. right. I mean, if, if you're full, not fully understanding what's going on and the, the scope, there's no way that a 12-year-old is going to be able to wrap their head around that. I have to say that I'm I'm actually fairly impressed with your diagnostic journey and how quickly it went. I mean, for so many patients, um, it, you know, it can take months or years. Looking back now, do you think prior to that tonic-clonic seizure that there were any signs of epilepsy or seizures um, before the one in the mall? Uh, we do. It's funny you should ask that because at that time... Um, So the thing with juvenile myoclonic, they get three different types of seizures. They get the tonic clonics, and then they get the absence seizures, which, um, you know, are just staring. And ironically, my stepdaughter had absence seizures when she was about six years old, and she outgrew them. So I was familiar with those from her experience. And one time during that previous year prior to her tonic clonic, Chloe says, gal, sometimes I feel like I'm staring like Kennedy did. And it was always like right after she had gotten very little sleep, had been at a sleepover or, you know, 
And the doctor was asking her too, have you had like jerks in your hands or your feet? Felt like, you know, you've dropped things easier. And she's like, well, yeah. But she never told me about those times. There was a few times where it seemed like she was clumsier maybe than normal, drop things easier. But again, you don't put two and two together till much further down the road. And then you're sitting there going, okay, there's all these pieces of the puzzle and now it makes sense. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. An estimated 3.4 million Americans and 65 million people worldwide currently live with epilepsy. For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. She's starting on Keppra. She's sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day. Clearly, this is not... A, a sustainable or livable side effect of the meds. I, you know, I, it's a, such a common, I think in the epilepsy world that we just sort of understand that um, sometimes the side effects from the medications are worse than the seizures themselves and, and finding that balance. What were your next steps? How did, how did you find a balance? Have you found a balance? Well, uh, so then when we met with the epileptologists, he suggested she go on Lamotrigine in the long term. But because of the way that has to be introduced very extremely slowly, otherwise it can produce some lethal, you know, deadly um, consequences. And so his plan was, since we're in summertime, to slowly wean off the Keppra once we had the Lamotrigine at, you know, therapeutic levels. And so he figured that would be really the whole course of the summer before we were at therapeutic levels. And so I think it was right maybe the week before school started when we had made that full transition. She was at what seemed to be a therapeutic level of the Lamotrigine. Was the medication working? Were you seeing fewer absence seizures? Was she feeling less of the jerks? She did seem um, to have less absence she hadn't had any more tonic clonics. Um, the myclonics we felt were decreasing. They still weren't where they wanted them to be, but it was a start. So we walked out of there feeling good, like, okay, we might have to adjust the meds, but this is something we can handle. Well, over the course of time, you know, that epileptologist ended up leaving that healthcare facility. Um, she would get increased number of absence. Increase my clonic still no more tonic clonics and to this day she's never had another tonic clonic um, but the other two types have been problematic and there was no other neurologist or epileptologist in the state in the um, state in the state at that time so I could travel down to South Dakota which would be about three and a half hours or I could go three and a half hours to Minneapolis to Minnesota Epilepsy Group. And from everything I had heard was that place was phenomenal. You know, that's their their cup of tea. That's what they focus on. and Which is amazing, but it's three and a half hours away, which is... Right, right. And I mean, that's a, that's a trip. It is a trip, you know, and I felt because she wasn't totally stable, I wanted the epileptologist. I wanted that specialty. I wanted the care that we were getting down there where it was comprehensive. I felt more heard. She felt more heard. Um, 
you know, the things we talked about, they, they've been there with so many patients. That was what they knew. And so we just stayed down there and made it work. And that's what we've done since then. So how often are you able to see her epileptologist, given that uh, she's, uh, that the, the care's three and a half hours away? Well, fortunately, she was quote unquote stable enough that um, she was only needing to be seen like a couple times a year. They did do an inpatient, um, you know, monitoring stay. We've done those twice. Uh, the first time she just really, the doctor wanted a baseline. That actually made me feel a little bit better. Chloe, I don't know that liked it. You know, she liked it. It was difficult, frustrating, and she felt confined. Um, she was worried about school and missing school and if her friends found out because she she doesn't like to talk about it. So I, I want to dive into that a little bit. How has that been for her? Because I, I mean, I don't know anyone who wants to go back and live those middle school, early high school years. Adding, you know, on top of that epilepsy and the anxiety of wondering when or if the next seizure is going to occur and how that must have affected her self-esteem and how did she respond to that and how did you parent her through that? Well, I will say that's an ongoing, <laughs> we still work through that, but um, you're right. It's been challenging, um, you know, the middle school years, it's just ugly. People, people can be mean. And she was, you know, these are kids that she's known, but she was definitely, and even some of them were down playing the soccer tournament the weekend it happened, but she still did not want to talk about it and she didn't want anybody to know. Um, and so, you know, I've really tried to encourage her to learn to be open you know, she still struggles. You know, school, I will use school as an example. It became very difficult for her. She used to have a sharp as a whip memory. She could remember anything and um, it takes her longer to retain information. Um, she has a hard time translating the information from her brain down to paper or verbally. Many times she knows it once she gets it, but it takes her longer to get to that point. And so, um, you know, just trying to teach her ways as we've been working through, you know, 504s and IEPs and um, as she gets older, trying to teach her to advocate for herself and, you know, emphasizing that, okay, these are just ideas. Some may work and some may not. But this is the time to try and figure out what works for you. And just because you maybe learn differently than somebody else doesn't mean it's wrong. I just try, I try my best to fill her with positive thoughts and helping her understand she can still achieve anything she wants to in life. Um, but, you know, she's developed pretty, pretty severe anxiety and depression out of all this. And whether that's, you know, from the meds or the epilepsy itself, we don't know. Um, you know, when we go to Minnesota Epilepsy Group, they also have the psychologists and psychiatrists on staff. And so we generally meet with them too down there. And that's been pretty helpful um, just because, you know, they're used to working with, again, patients specifically that have epilepsy and so seeing the issues that arise out of that. I want to dive a little deeper into the mental health aspect because I think that that, that is just so incredibly important. We know that depression and anxiety are very common comorbidities 
uh, with epilepsy. Are there signs to look out for that you would want to share with other parents? Things that you can see in Chloe when you know she's having a particularly challenging time? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, from a school a aspect, really know your child. Um, you know, if something looks atypical, their grades suddenly drop, um, they're missing a lot of assignments for her, that's a trigger. Because what I found with her is she completes, completely shuts down. Um, many times she'll have some anxiety going on and she tries so hard to keep that to herself and learn to work through it. But I'll start noticing, okay, these assignments are missing. What's going on? But, you know, I'd say trust your gut as far as knowing your child. And also encourage the counseling aspect. Um, when I first, there was a period of time where, you know, Chloe was coming home in tears every day. Kids were being mean. She was struggling in school. She was overwhelmed. You know, complete shutdown mode. And... I really had to get through to her. I had brought up counseling and immediately she shut that down. She didn't want any part of that. And I just explained it like any other disease. Like you'd go to the doctor to get help for a broken leg or, you know, something going on with your skin or, you know, and it's really no different. I said, you'd be surprised at the number of people that get help. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. You know, that's what they're there for. And at first, her first response was, well, I can just talk to you. I talk to you about everything. And I said, I know, and I'll always be here. But, you know, these are professionals. This is what they're trained to do. And sometimes it's good to talk to somebody else that's not involved in the situation because they may see things differently. And so, you know, she slowly opened up. She said, okay, fine. <laughs> um and, you know, it took a while. The counselor really had to build that relationship with her. But I would also say to the counseling thing, you know, if one doesn't work, try somebody different because there's so many personalities that you have to really find the right fit for you. That is incredible advice all the way around. And I, I could not agree with you more. You, know, you talked about some of the educational um, effects of epilepsy that, you know, she was requiring more time um, to comprehend. What were some of the specific um, accommodations that you requested for on those IEPs? Well, we have, we have a variety. So what we found, you know, we went through the neuropsych testing process, kind of for confirmation on what we were already thinking was going on. But it really showed that her executive functioning areas is where her, you know, seizure activity was affecting her. And so comprehending, decision-making, impulsiveness, some of those things really stood out, as well as her memory. Like, her working memory is good once it's in there, or, you know, relatively good once it's in there. But it takes a long time for it to get there and stay there. And so we had to find ways that would maybe work together with that so she had more time um, to get that information in. And I think the other piece with epilepsy, and I'm sure, you know, you've heard others say, like for some people, like her, to the, to the outside, she looks like she's a normal, healthy kid. But you don't look sick. Right, exactly. And so they look at her as even some of the teachers. Well, she just doesn't want to try. Fortunately, there was a couple that really kind of connected with Chloe and were 
advocates for her, including the nurse at the school. So that was helpful. Um, but as far as the other actual accommodations, you know, we asked for more time or no time limits really for her on time tests, which will also come into play when she starts um, looking at like ACT testing for college. And um, less options for multiple choice. So instead of four, she might only have three options. Or if it's matching questions, you know how sometimes they have extras in there to kind of throw you off. It's a, a one for one match. Um, the other big thing we added in there was if there's, you know, written responses to like they'll let her take a first stab at the test and then she would meet with the teacher after because a lot of times she might know it in her brain but trying to get that onto paper in the right way how she's understanding it is difficult and so the teacher would actually meet with her and let her verbalize uh, her responses and explain more which has proven helpful. What have you learned that you would want to share with other parents who are who are newly walking into a situation where their child is newly diagnosed, where they have a teenager at home and they're navigating this epilepsy world with a teenager who is going through hormonal changes and testing medications? What have you learned that you can share that, that you want them to know? I'd say I've learned to use the resources that you have and don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, try and find a way to connect with other parents or which is difficult because that information isn't always you know readily available but um, my hope is to have more resources out there that are easier to find for those parents. We need to do a better job of getting the information out there and getting that information into the hands of newly diagnosed or, or even like you were saying early on, you know, some people's journeys to even getting that diagnosis is incredibly long. And so where can we make it better? Yeah, absolutely. I imagine that you have lots of hope and goals and dreams um, for Chloe. What are they? What, what do you hope for, for her and for her future? I think my biggest hope is for her to believe in herself again and realize that she's not her diagnosis, um, that she can achieve anything she wants to achieve in life and she can go on to do big things and, and help others even in this journey. Thank you so, so much for sharing everything that you've learned, your knowledge, your experience um, and your daughter's story with us, please. Um, give her our best and know that we are cheering her on and that we believe in her. And I just uh, am so grateful for your advocacy. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Kelly, for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Angie, for sharing Chloe's epilepsy journey and your perspective on parenting a teenager with epilepsy. As Chloe's story makes clear, epilepsy can strike anyone without warning. From infants to the elderly, epilepsy knows no boundaries. But the 65 million people affected by epilepsy share one thing in common. They all hope for a cure to permanently end their seizures. Cure Epilepsy is dedicated to finding that cure. 
That's why we have raised over $78 million to fund more than 250 grants in 15 countries. We hope you will join us in our efforts to find a cure for epilepsy by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.